In Ephesians 6, verse 10, Jeriel was bringing this verse up. I asked him this morning what was on his heart, and this is what the verse that he read. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of what? His might. So do we have power in ourselves? Nope. Is all our power in Christ? Yes. That's why he said in Matthew 28, 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. And in this part, all our power is in Christ in our position because he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But he's also being there, given us his power on earth right now. So we have this power. But look what it says. Finally, my brother, my brother, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. What's that speaking of? That means this is the truth about what we have in our position in Christ. Because we're in the midst of spiritual warfare. Okay, that's our position, but how do we put that on? We put it on experientially. We put it on. Put on the whole armor of God. Okay, who is the whole armor of God? Christ is. He's our protection, isn't he? Do we have any outside of him? No. So put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, or in other words, to have the ability of the armor that Christ is that you put on experientially thinking it through, putting it on, that you may have the ability to what? Stand. Stand. And stand here is different than state. Stand here is equal to our position in Christ. That's what stand means, position. Now, has that position entered into my state or my standing, or my standing is my position, has it entered into my condition or my present experience? See? So if I don't experience the reality of my position through putting on the armor of Christ, can I have the ability experientially to fight? No. And what is all the armor here? It's all defensive. It's all protecting us. Right? It protects us. So we stand against the wiles of the devil. We said wiles this morning, and Jody all shared it. He talked about its method. It's where we get our English word method, or his means of operation. He's been robbed of his power. That brings in the reality of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He has done away with his power. He's defeated him. He is a defeated foe. So how then, the truth is he's defeated. So how then would he operate and try to affect us in our experience? It's through a lie. His methodia, that's where we get our English word. Methodia is wiles here. The Greek word is methodia. That's what it is. And against the devil. For we wrestle, the word wrestle here is very interesting in the original. It is P-A-L-E, pale-E. Purely. It means in our experience, the enemy wants to get us into a battle with him in our experience and have a face-to-face -face battle with him. <laughs> but is the battle ours or the Lord's in Exodus 14, verse 14? Is the battle the Lord's or ours in 1 Samuel 17 
and verse 47. Is the battle ours or is the battle the Lord's? In Deuteronomy 1, 29 and 30. No, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. So, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now, when Paul wrote this word, he had in his mind, given by the Holy Spirit, the Greek games. You know, there was what we call the Olympics. That's where the Olympics started. It was the Greek games. They would get together and have all these athletes doing it. But in wrestling, when these two opponents, literally, when they would wrestle in these Greek games way back then, the loser of that, and it was a face-to-face, hand-to-hand battle. Battle. That's what the enemy wants. He wants us to get... Stop facing who we are in Christ and start facing him in our experience and get into a battle with him. Close contact because it was wrestling. Wrestling, it's very, very close contact. Grappling constantly, face to face. The loser in the Greek games, the loser would have his eyes gouged out. That's what the enemy wants to do with us. He wants to gouge out the true image in our eyesight of who Christ is in us and who we are in him. He wants to get us into a spiritual battle. That's what it means. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now, when this was written, the apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, had the book of Joshua, the whole book of Joshua in his mind. Because they had a battle. They had some skirmishes in the wilderness. But as soon as they entered into the promised land, that's where all their enemies were. Right? It's like us, the first time we were saved. Didn't seem to be such a battle. But then we started learning the truth about who we were in Christ. Then all those enemies started coming against us. This is what he's saying. Their enemies were flesh and blood that they had to drive out of the promised land so that they could experientially rest in who Christ was in them and them in Christ in type. So we wrestle not against flesh and blood like Joshua and the Israelites did. No, but against principalities against the powers, against the rules of the darkness of this world system, of which Satan is the head, through usurping, allowed by God for a time, against spiritual wickedness in the heights. That's what it says. Why is it saying that? Because Israel is God's earthly people. Where is heavenly people? Where is Christ seated right now? In Ephesians 1. 20 to 23 in the heavens. Where are we seated? We're seated in and positionally in Ephesians 2, 6 in the heavens. So because of the height that we have in our position will be the height of the enemy coming against us. But it, since God for us in Romans 8, 31 through 39, God for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, does it matter who comes against us? <laughs> it doesn't matter. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. This is understanding all the truths, the positional truths about who we are in Christ, who Christ is in us. Positional truths. Because if I don't have a proper understanding of my position in, that key word, in Christ, how will I, how will I be in my experience in the midst of spiritual warfare? 
Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to be what? To what? To withstand, to withstand in what? The evil day. The evil day is the world system that we live in right now. But, thank God, it's on a collision course with eternity. And in 1 John 2.17, it's going to end. And it's going to end in Revelation 10, verse 6, because in that sense, time will be no more. Okay? So, stand therefore, having your, lo- your loins all around here, gird about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. If we had the time to go into these things, they would be incredible. We will. We will at some point, and we will put this in print. I firmly believe that God will have us to do that so that we can take our time and, and glean and grow in it, you know, progressively, which is, which is what growth is. It's progressive, right? And so we stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of what? Peace. What does that mean? You know what that means? It doesn't mean we're going out and preaching to others peace. It means our very, pe- our very walk is based upon the peace that we actually have with Christ. That's what 615 is talking about. And then it says, above all, (laughs) most importantly, it says, taking the shield of faith. Really, it's taking the shield of the faith. That means all those truths about who we are in Christ, all of them. And then with that shield, and we want to get into that when we get into this booklet that we're going to print and maybe even preach on um, who knows in the future, how it quenches all those fiery missiles of hell, those thought projections based upon a lie, trying to affect our experience because he can't touch our position. So he wants to get us into a battle where we battle in our experience. We turn away from Christ's proper image and get into a battle and all these fiery missiles, but the shield would protect it. All those truths that we have in Christ. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with that very shield, you are able, have the ability to quench, to extinguish all those fiery darts, those lies, those imaginations that he projects against faith in 2 Corinthians 10.5. We cast down imaginations and every high thing that comes against us, right? Every high thing that comes against the knowledge of God and then having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when our obedience is fulfilled. And though we see that in spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 6. We quench all the, the fiery missiles of the wicked one and then we take the helmet of salvation, protects our thinking, and the sword of the Spirit we know the sword of the Spirit is, is, the, is the Holy Spirit taking the things of Christ in our experience, whereby we battle. We battle. But the battle is the Lord's, and he directs us through the power of the Holy Spirit, taking the things of Christ in John 16, 13 and 14, and showing them unto us in the midst of our experiential battle, the battle that comes against us. Right? But who do we have in us? Christ in us. We have Christ in us. And that's why in James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but he gives more grace, greater grace, to those that he's humbled. 
See, key humility for proper experience in warfare is key. God will resist the proud. The pride in a Christian, he will resist it. Because he has nothing else to do when a, when a Christian lives in pride and in that pride resisting God. So they put God to, to resist because of their lack of obedience and pride. And we know pride, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We don't fall in our position, but we fall in our experience through pride and through sin. But God resists the proud, but he gives more grace to the humble. All right? And therefore, what? Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Then you resist the devil, and he flees from you, meaning you put Christ between you. That's what it means. You're putting on the armor. You're putting on the armor, and you have the sword of the Spirit. The sword is useless to the believer unless it's the sword of the Spirit. And again, it's the battle. Even the sword in my hand has to do with the power of the Holy Spirit, God. See how that works? And that is Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul, self-consciousness, getting into an experiential battle with the thoughts and the lies and the projections of the enemy. Instead, we cast them down because we have a sword. And then we get into God consciousness, a true image about who we are in Christ. And that's based on Hebrews 4.12 with Ephesians 6.17, taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And always in verse 18, one of the most important things is praying always with us all, prayer, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. You see, in the Spirit, right? And they that are Christ, you know, we walk in the Spirit, in Galatians 5.16, we don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh because those that are Christ have crucified the affections, all those bad thoughts and emotions, all have been crucified in Galatians 5, verse 24. These, all this goes into these truths that we have in Christ. So, again, look at what it says. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, Ephesians 6, 10, and in the power of what? His might. His might. That's what it means. Let the weak say what? And I am strong in Joel 3.10, 2 Corinthians 12.9. Let the weak say, I am strong. Where am I strong? In myself? No. My strength comes from him. My strength comes from him. So he needs us to face him. That's what he does. He doesn't need us to turn our back on him or to what? Backslide. <laughs> He needs for us. And that's what he does. There's going to be a confrontation. God wants to confront us. But if he wants to confront us, what is he confronting us with? A love that will never leave us nor forsake us in Hebrews 13, verse 5. Never. So what it's saying there is withstand in 6.10, right? Then in 6.11, to stand, right? To stand there and then what? Again, what? All the way over to withstand in verse 13 in the evil day when all those attacks come. Now, when it says stand there, how, how am I to understand that? That's our position in Christ. And this is where Romans, the fifth chapter, will bring that understanding, 
that we have in our position and when we understand it, bring it into our experience so that we know through that truth that is ours in Christ, we will know how to battle when the enemy comes against us. Right? Therefore, in Ephesians and uh, Romans 5, verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we are justified. What's it mean to be justified? We are cleared of all guilt and condemnation because of who Christ is and what he accomplished on the cross. Therefore, being justified by what? Faith, complete dependence upon what Christ has accomplished, we have what? Peace with God. Do we have peace with God? As far as God's concerned, does he have peace with us through Christ? Do we have it experientially? That's where we need to have our feet shod with the reality in Ephesians 6.15 in our walk that we do have peace. And that's why we have confession. We can confess sin and keep walking in the peace that we have through fellowship. Because sin... Remember, as we've been taught, never touches our relationship with Christ, with God through Christ. That's our position. But can it affect my experience, my communion, my fellowship? Yes, it can. That's why the enemy wants to get us into a battle. He wants to get us into a battle and use up energy, which would, which would instead would cause us to rest in Christ and have communion and fellowship. So you can have both. I can't have both. I can't be in spiritual warfare negatively with the enemy and experience who I am in fellowship in Christ with a proper image, with a proper identity. And we have it, every one of us. Therefore, being justified by complete dependence in Christ's faith, we have peace with God, look what it says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look what it says in verse 2. By whom also we have access... By faith, into this grace wherein we what? Stand. That's our position. So what he's saying here is, is that in spiritual warfare, God will give us grace as we're, as he's, we're humble and entreatable to stand, which has to do with our position, faithfully in our experience. And we're immovable. I don't know, is God immovable? Was there anything that moved Christ? Anything? No. That's why he's called our foundation. Matthew 16, verse 18, and in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11. He's our foundation. Can you move Christ who is our foundation? No. And when the house settles on that, and we are his house, in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, and in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, we are his house, and we are built upon a what? A solid foundation, a rock. And then when all get the gates of hell in Matthew 16, 18 come against us and we have our house built not upon emotions, bad thoughts and bad emotions in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 24 to 27, but it's built upon a rock. And when the storms come from the atmosphere, the waves of projections and storms come against us, we are settled on a solid foundation. We are his house built upon a solid foundation and we are what? Immovable. And so God allows this spiritual warfare to happen because we know this in Hebrews chapter 12. Here's why he allows it. And the enemy means it for evil in Genesis 50 verse 20, but God means it for what? For our good. 
Just positional good? No, experiential good. His good. His good. And that's why all things work together for the good. The good there is ho agathos. It's saying this good, God's divine good. God's divine good for us. All things work together for the good to them that what? Love God. Now, what is us loving God? He loved us first, right? In 1 John 4, 10 and 19. Then when we receive it, that love, and obey him by giving our will to him, his love is returned. That's what Romans 8, 28 is saying. All things work together for the good to them that love God. But if I don't love him in my experience and I'm disobedient in my experience and God's good for me. No. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good to them that love God and are thee called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. And then you can read 29. But we see why God allows it. And here's why. And you're going to see in the midst of spiritual warfare, even in our disobedience, how God is so for us. Because in Hebrews 12, you look at the whole, you have to read Hebrews, the 12th chapter. All right? Because it's awesome in, in pertaining to spiritual warfare. Only 29 verses there. That's why, we, why God has us give the scriptures so that we can take them, write them down if we can, if we can't remember them. And then we can have them to go back to where he can teach us continually. Right? So, but Hebrews 12, 1, it says how we're to look away from everything that would distract. That's Hebrews 12, 2. But it says, lay aside every weight. What's that? What's every weight? Are we built to carry any weight apart from Christ? No. And if we try to carry the weight, our own weight, our own laboring, and being heavy laden, as we has been explained to us in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. When we try to do that, what does that weight do? It causes us to fall. Because we have a false burden. And we think we have a need that we can meet ourselves. Or that we can do it for someone else. Which we can't. We can't even do it for ourselves. So if we try to carry that weight, it says lay aside every weight. Because if we don't, it leads to the sin. It leads to sin. That's all we can do if we don't give it to him. It leads to sin that so easily trips us up in the race. The Christian race, the Christian, we're in a marathon. Not a 50-yard dash. It's not a 100-yard dash. Like some false teaching. If you do these certain things instantly, you'll get all these things. I don't know where they get that, considering in 2 Peter 3.18, we grow in grace and knowledge. But we lay it aside. And, and then in Hebrews 12, 2, what? Looking away. You have to look away first from all that would distract. Is that the enemy trying to distract us and get us into this, this experiential battle with him, with ourselves, how we think about ourselves outside of Christ, how others think about us, how we even feel? <laughs> God. No. Nope. Look away from all that distract unto Jesus. Have eyes only for Christ, because only God sees us through Christ. And then, and, and then if we sin, it goes into what? Chastisement, loving chastisement. Follow it all the way through. 
till finally, till finally, as we have to cut this short this morning, till finally we see verse 25. It says, see that you refuse not him that speaks. In other words, when he speaks the word to you about what you're functioning in that's not of him, don't refuse it. Don't operate in pride. Instantly submit to him, as we said in, in, uh, in James 4, verse 7. Right? But see that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escape not him who refused him that spoke on the earth, how much more will we not escape? Who are we, all those in Christ, if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven? And when he speaks from heaven, what is he speaking to us? This is your true position. This is your image. This is your identity. Not this. Not these thoughts. Not your feelings. Not someone else's thoughts. Not someone else's feelings. Don't refuse me when I speak to you. And when he speaks to us from heaven, our position, so that we know how to function in our experience in the midst of spiritual warfare. Boy, we need to be humble. I'm going to tell you that right now. It's a continual thing. God's only plan is designed to humble those that are his because it's the only place we will actually, he will be able to even grace us out with everything about who we already are. And we resist that? Where do you think that comes from? Well, see that you refuse not him that speaks, for if they escape not who refused him that spoke on earth, the Jews, look what happened to them. Read Numbers, the book of Numbers. Oh boy, what a lesson we have. What a lesson we have, right? Much more will we not escape, much more from him that speaks from heaven, whose voice then what? Shook the earth. But now he has promised saying, yeah, one, once more I shake not the earth only, but what? Also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies, listen to this, the removing of those things that are shaken. So God speaks a word from heaven through Christ in opposition, and it shakes who we're not. Why? Because he's against us? No, but he's for us in Romans 8.31. And that shaking is to remove what we're living in, in the lie in our experience, so the things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. It's talking about our position being made experiential in our experience. It's really true. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. I don't know. Do you have a kingdom without a king? Christ is our king. He's our savior. He's our Lord. He is. But if you see him, even when we come back with him on white horses from heaven, we'll see that in Revelations, the 19th chapter, in verses 11 to 16, especially in 16. He has on his vesture and on his thigh, King of King and Lord of Lords, the very word of God <laughs> speaking to us. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, listen, let us have grace. Let us have the true grace and experience of who Christ is in us and who we are in him. Right? Let us have grace whereby we may serve. Serve has to do with worship. Instead of serving, giving our mind over to 
to the garbage of the atmosphere. We continually, through obedience and humility and grace, give our minds over to him so that with our minds we know how to think properly and then actually worship him and be thankful right in the midst of spiritual warfare. In Hebrews 13, 15, we offer the sacrifices of praise and for all things in Ephesians 5, 20, we give thanks and in all things. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, we can give thanks to him, right? Because we have a kingdom that cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God, what? Acceptably. Can we serve him acceptably without giving our bodies over in Romans 12, 1 and 2? No. Acceptably, look what it says, with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. It's his love. His love has consumed and the fire, when we get into the sacrifices, and another time we'll get into that, in those types, especially in the book of Leviticus, there was always the sacrifice was cut up piece by piece and then put on an altar and fire consumed it. That's what Christ did on Calvary. The fire of his love. First and foremost, his father consumed the sin question, dealt with it. But then those that would receive him, and we see that in Leviticus, the first chapter, and in Leviticus, the 16th chapter, those that actually received him as their savior, as their substitute, were reconciled because all their sins were dealt with. That's our position. He's making it to be experiential through the process of sanctification and growth and grace that we have in Jesus' name. Amen.